Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Academia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And today we have a Career Pathways episode for you with Joe's Thomas, who we refer to as JT. He is the president of Choice Canning Company. I'm sure if you're in the industry, you have definitely heard of Choice Canning. They're a pretty big player. And he's got a pretty remarkable story that he shared with us. Uh, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. And I think you're going to get some serious inspiration from everything that he's done and kind of how he built his career from you know almost nothing into what it is now. So it's pretty inspiring. But before we get into that, I want to remind everybody, as I always do, to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen so you can get every new episode directly downloaded to your device as soon as it becomes available. And follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. If you have questions for us, do you want to be a guest? Do you have a topic suggestion? Do you want to sponsor the podcast? You can fill out our online form, which is located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And if you don't mind, we would really appreciate it if you took a minute and just left us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and we appreciate everybody who has done that. So enjoy this conversation that we had with JT and we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia Podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. So for today's Career Pathways episode, we are sitting down with Joe's Thomas, who is usually referred to as JT, and he is the president of Choice Canning Company. How's it going, Joe's? Thanks for joining us. Pretty good. Hey, nice to meet you guys, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, we uh, we got a recommendation from Jim Batchelor here, who is part of our team, and he recommended that we reach out to JT, said he'd have a really great story, and uh, I'll hand it off to you now. Go ahead and uh, tell us your story, we, and we'll just All chime right. in when we come up with some uh, yeah. some questions. Yeah, I'll jump straight into it. Uh, you know, I'm born and raised in India, uh, in the southern coast of India, in the state of Kerala, which used to be the commercial capital or the main production facility for the fishery and fishery products early from early 60s. So the history of my company and my entrance or entry into this industry was kind of default. You know, I'm born into... 11-member family. Oh, wow. I'm oh, number wow. 10. Eight sisters, three brothers, and I'm number 10. And my dad started the seafood business yeah, under the name Choice. Uh, obviously, Choice Canning Company that we are known for today used to can shrimp those days because there was a technology. Mm -hmm. But there was no better ways of preserving seafood those days, like canned tuna, canned shrimp, canned fish, and stuff like that because... Mm -hmm. There is no technology for frozen and, and, and uh, fresh, as you can see today. So he started off cooking shrimp and, uh, you know, putting it into a tin, sealing the tin and started exporting it to various overseas markets, including the U.S. those days and Canada and stuff like that. And people, whenever they wanted shrimp salad, I would say that they would go buy a tin of shrimp salad in a can. And they'll do the dressing and have the salad shrimp, like the tuna today. Tuna is still canned. Mm -hmm. But what happened was, uh, you know, he he did bring up the company, small little company, small little business. He raised his kids and his daughters got married and then none of them were in the business. 
Um, as I was uh, growing up in school and all that stuff, I had uh, developed a particular interest in my dad's business. And that's something which I took on. We are three brothers and I'm number three. Okay. So in 1972, uh, all of a sudden, you know, he, he left this world. Okay. He had uh, a bad uh, medical issue and uh, he departed the world, uh, leaving the three boys in kind of disarray, mm-hmm. not knowing what to do. Right. We didn't know how to cancer him. I didn't know how to cancer him. I didn't know any of these things. But my oldest brother knew a little bit, so we decided to combine the, our resources together. And then I was doing my 11th grade of schooling at that time. But, you know, obviously, when my father passed away, there was a huge gap in the family, and people were confused. The members were confused, and I'm very young. So one of the proposals was to for the family to sell and get out. Mm-hmm. That we're not capable. We don't know the business. We don't know what it is. Why, you know, the nine yards of shrimp business. But I was 17 years old at that time. And when I heard, because I knew my dad lived for choice. My dad lived for this business. He has spent considerable amount of time in... in uh, getting his business going, and he was very passionate about it. His departure was very fast, and he didn't have much of time to plan. Mm-hmm. So when I could, you know, sneak in and peek in into the post-recovery room where he was, uh, you know, recovering from his surgery, uh, I could figure out that he was only talking choice. And he was talking to his then-managers, hey, who will take it forward? Looks like he knew that he's not going to make it. So I heard his uh, death wish, I must say, that this needs to go forward. And contradicting to all that, when I heard after you know a few weeks, when the family members who were my sisters, husbands, and they were all much senior to me, they said, "Oh, you guys are incapable. You know, give up, sell it to somebody." And said, "I put my hand up and said no." So that was the day when I started the conflict with my own family. Uh-huh. Okay, my own brothers, where I said, no, I disagree, and we need to, you know, take this forward. The answer I got was, you go back to school, buddy. You don't have to worry about it. We are the oldest of the family. You are doing 11th grade. You better go back and sit in that classroom and get some education. But my mother, who was a widow at that time, you know, 52 years old widow, she said, she stood with me, and she had a bigger say in the family. Cut the story short. I went ahead and quit my schooling. I did get out of it. And then there was, of of course, there's a conflict in the family. And there were a couple of years that the business had to be almost shut down because of disputes and things like that. However, you know, I did not give up. I battled it. And, you know, I started to see at that time the frozen category shrimp had started to emerge. And the main market used to be Japan. And we had some history at that time, my dad trying to do some business with Japanese partners like the Mitsubishi and the Sumitomo Corporation and things like that, who those days started to import frozen shrimp mm-hmm. in Japan. So I said, I don't want to do the scanning business anymore because it is a headache. Once I got to know about this business, I was 17 years old. The tin was reacting with the shrimp due to some chemical reaction and there were a lot of rejections by the Food and Drug Authority here at that time for hmm. blackened tail or shrimp and things like that. So slowly, 
the Cantrum technology died. And quickly, I was able to transition and build a plant in India uh, to do block frozen shrimp. That is how we did raw material freezing. I went to Japan at the age of 17 and change and uh, tried to solicit business with those big multinational socias. But none of them gave me a, a, an appointment because they said, we don't do business with children. Right. I was underage. <laughs> And the biggest problem was to get through that situation to see that I'm an adult. But that took a while. That was a process. But finally, I started to do business with, uh, you know, some of the large conglomerates of Japan in the seafood division, and I developed it. And all of a sudden, one day, you know, my oldest brother and second brother realizes that, hey, this young guy, young kid, if he can't turn this around, why don't we all join back together? So we got you know, the story together and uh, we united again and we made the business grow. So my brothers did contribute to the story and then we had some great amount of success as we started the journey. So we opened up Japan and my older brother opened up the United States market where we started shipping block frozen shrimp that we call it the, the tiny shrimp that used to be extruded those days for making breaded extruded shrimp in the United States by companies like Ritzy Pack, who's still in existence, mm -hmm. companies like many, many frying companies, you know, breaded companies, because they could not those days use whole shrimp to bread it because it is too expensive. So they bought the little meat from India that was available, they extruded it, and they made it into the shape of into shrimp. Into the shape of the shrimp, yeah. Shrimp, and that's how the extruded shrimp industry started. So we started supplying huge amount of volumes to some of these companies here. We used to sell it to importers, you know, and uh, funny enough, you know, I came to the United States for the first time and uh, that was when I was about 19 years old. Met with some of the importers. They're big time guys. They had, you know, expensive cars and nice offices and they took us out for dinner, entertained us and because we had the supplier. So I saw the, the era of the importers. And, uh, you know, the funny enough, we were not making money. But each time I came back to visit, visit them, they had upgraded their cars and automobile and their business. And they had, you know, more wealth compared to we, the supplier, mm -hmm. never made money. Because that's always been the case. We struggled and struggled. And, you know, in the meantime, my oldest brother, we, we had ups and downs. We lost money in business. And it came to a point, uh, my oldest brother uh, said, I don't want to be involved in this business. So he quit. So me and my mom uh, bought him out, bought his shares out, and then choice scanning continued the journey. Uh, I did go through uh, more of failures than success in my early 20s because there were issues with Food and Drug Administration. India got blocklisted on shrimp. In the U.S.? Uh, in the US. Yes, in the U.S. Okay. Every consignment had to be automatically detained and inspected, and then only it could enter the country. Jeez. So it was it was a big challenge, you know. It was mostly for filth, microfilth, and uh, shrimp caught in tropical waters in India and all that. Of course, obviously came up with, you know, natural organic type of filth, which is not visible by human eye. So those got rejected, and the challenge came up and so on. So. 
This continued in the meantime, you know, I came up in, uh, with an idea that we need to make more money. That's a business. Any career, anybody thinks you want to make more money. So in 84, I made a trip to the U.S. with a specific intention of establishing our own office in the United States and to eliminate the middleman because I knew a day would come when B2B will be more than, you know, than what's happening those days. So these, these middlemen, of course, uh, most of them are not around today. They, they don't exist anymore. Either they don't exist or they are not in the world anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 1986, with great difficulty, you know, convincing my Indian government, which was very conservative in terms of allowing Indian businesses to go overseas, uh, because if something went wrong here, you know, Indian government will understand by me in terms of providing the foreign exchange that I would need to settle the debts, if any. Mm. And India at that time was not really ready for it. However, I was able to convince uh, and I got the permission. And uh, with a small little capital, I land here in New York one day with my wife and two little kids, three years and one year, not knowing where it is. Uh, that's the first time when I came to John F. Kennedy and I didn't know what to do. Before I knew what to do because my importers were waiting to receive me. Right. Put me in a nice Dodge car or a Cadillac and drove me to the hotel. They fed me. Next day morning, they picked me up with jet lag. I go to their office and get whatever purchase orders I can get. And I was back on an air India plane a couple of days later. But mm-hmm. here I am. There's nobody to receive me. They've got to know what I'm doing. And they were pissed off at me. They would not receive me. Perhaps they would have stopped me at the airport coming in. <laughs> I was trying to get into their part of the business. So I came in and I said, what do we do? So I first stayed in, in a hotel somewhere in Manhattan. I don't remember that. And I thought New York City is America. That's what I thought. I was, I was like 27, 28 years old. I said, wow, I'm in America here to do business, land of freedom, land of opportunity. And this is Statue of Liberty. And I said, hey, here we go. Would you believe I opened my office here in 19 Rector Street, right off the Wall Street, oh, geez. to do silly shrimp business? Because I had a feeling I was thinking big. I knew I'm here in this country to build a career and to build an organization. And I came here with $8,000. That is a capital that I brought in. Oh, wow. That capital got rolled away in less than two months. Because everything goes over. By the time I bought the fax machine, by the time I bought furniture, New York City blew me off. And, you know, that was terrible. But I survived there. And I moved into a little apartment in Queens, uh, in, uh, you know, in uh, Flushing, Queens. Little place. And we had no furniture. Well, my kids and my wife and me, we all slept on the floor. Oh, man. For, for months. Because I was very determined that I will find a career within this hard work that you put in. Mm -hmm. Industry is known. Yeah, it's shrimp, seafood, canning to frozen, frozen to anything else. But I knew that I had made a determined path or determined decision to be in this business to be Mm end-to-end. That is something what you need today. People have to think out of the box. People have to look at the bigger picture. And that is something which I certainly would ask the listeners who are listening to this to think big, it's easy to go to the bookstore and buy the book and read it, but I'm talking to you from experience. Right. You can't be short term. You got to have the bigger picture. 
you need to go and see that you run the last mile. And that's what I did. So I took all these blows, lived there, uh, week to week, right from my grocery. And uh, I knew, I, but there is a way to do it. So then I started to look at, see, where was that frozen block, frozen from going? Traceability. Mm -hmm. Importers mm -hmm. imported it. They never, they, they never even saw the product. It went to brothers and, and cocktail makers, salad shop. Mm -hmm. You know, salad shop was big then, salad shop was big now. So I found a few companies in the New England area who were the ultimate manufacturers of the end product. Uh, I approached them and they were happy to see me to say, hey, I'm happy to do direct business with the source. So you are the direct source. You have the plant owner. You have a factory. We don't want these middlemen. Yeah, shorten the chain. Yeah. So they jumped at me and said, wow, let's do business. So we started to do business. I started to get purchase orders from the end customer, which increased my profitability, which increased my access, which increased my position in the industry chain, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. We started importing slowly. How did I find the capital? From India. You know, my Indian company started shipping on credit terms to Choice USA. Choice USA had no bank line. We had no credit lines. Nothing. And we'll give it to you. At this time, what was going on in India with Choice? Was, was your brother running it? or? Yeah, India Plant was running. I had managers who were running it. I used to fly back and forth every month between India and here. Mm -hmm. And we exported the product, you know, what we produced in our own plant to Choice USA in a small way. Two containers a month. You know, and that was enough for me. Yeah. That was like $200,000 a month. And that itself was a big deal. Yeah. But I saw a value addition when I sold my importers versus the end user. I saw marginal margin differences where I got higher GPs. And from there, I, I knew what and how. Okay. So I expanded that. Then I found out the next, you know, area where... The, those days, mostly breaded shrimp and cocktail shrimp it was mostly in Florida. Okay. In, some, in uh, Tampa, Florida, I found a great relationship. Those days, Conagra Foods mm -hmm. used to have a seafood processing plant in Tampa called Singleton Seafood. People in the industry will know them. Yeah. They're pretty, pretty popular. They had a plant right there. They used to import Indian shrimp, slack it out, cook it put them in retail bags and sell it to all the supermarkets. And that's what they were doing. So I started to do business with them. And the president of that company then, Mr. Jesse Gonzalez, I hope he's still around, God bless him. He took a liking for the concept and he said, yes. He told his customers, we don't buy from middlemen anymore. We are competitive, we are price competitive, we have control on what they do because we do direct business with the factory. And that is, I'm a, I'm a direct factory story, mm -hmm. early time. Perhaps I'm the first one from Asia to achieve this. And it's a big accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. To, to go through these hurdles, to go through some kind of a controlled business practices, controlled industrial practices, I, I could break all those barriers and jump up. And here I'm sitting with the president of Sickleton Seafood, who is on the board of directors of Conagra Foods. You know, from from sleeping on the floor in Queens all the way back there, 
and this gentleman found me interesting my proposals were interesting one day i go to him you know we were doing business i go to him and says jesse today i fish you know my fishermen fish in india it is all ocean caught not aquaculture i'm mm-hmm. like today uh i freeze it i ship it to you you slack it and you cook it and you freeze it again i said there's a cost element there and also double freezing is involved why don't you help me set up a plant in india that we can do this operation there and you can save on labor sorry i support labor but i had to use you know the concept of cheaper labor in india versus tampa labor right cut the story short again uh, in 1990 singleton seafood to whom i owe a lot uh, agreed to participate in my program they gave me all the technical advice no investment at all they gave me knowledge they taught me how to do what to do and i invested using india banking funds and all that stuff the first fully automated individually quick frozen shrimp plant i would say in claim in asia the first plant in that wow. yes remember i was sleeping on a floor in queens week to week not even paycheck to paycheck because i didn't have a paycheck right getting on number 7 train from flushing and getting off in in uh, you know in new york city and then walking the streets to see where what i could do um so this was a big story where the indian media covered it big time saying that the first value added plant comes up in india in kind of an association with conagra for singleton seafood we started processing ready you know the final product now plant i got i got a lot of support from singleton team they came to india lived there taught us qa staff qa people and they bought back everything that i produced in their brand it was singleton brand i still remember they had captain morgan brand their singleton brand so we produced that in our plant and the final product was shipped to tampa we made substantial amount of profits and singleton made substantial amount of profits so then singleton was ultimately just distributing right buying and distributing they were distributing yeah. they were just yeah. distributing all the retailers here they saw this as a very success story because a of course to to not to my to anybody's liking they they dismantled that setup in tampa they were not cooking from anymore probably they did a major layoff and they said we don't want to be here they were cutting costs and they found an opportunity with us i mean everybody is not that philanthropic to think yeah i want american labor yes i like american labor but they all thought in their own process you know yeah. how to make more money exactly that's what exactly. everybody thinks so i'm not to blame for it but that was kind of a you know huge change there and we did so much of business with singleton seafood and the rest of singleton's competition got an over us because singleton's competition could not compete this deal mm-hmm. because singleton was buying at source with the producer with uh, you know handholding each other mm-hmm. and they became very price competitive and the price and the market share went up So there is a time and various other companies came to me and said hey why don't you do it for us too yeah, yeah. so I set up the second plant for fishy products which is now owned by I don't know who it is we did tremendous amount of business there created all that and then 
you know, this is this is like 1998-1999, you know, when the, the fruition came, my profits went up, I was able to pay for a coach class and fly, <laughs> forget about a business class, I was able to pay for it on time, I was able to pay my vendors on time, I was able to live a life, I was able to... Get some furniture in that up. apartment. Exactly, so furniture in that apartment. I mean, talking about which I've written about this, you know, creativity has no boundary. Mm -hmm. So the biggest challenge I had those days when I went back home in Flushing was to have dinner. Eating on the floor and eating became a challenge mm -hmm. every day, bending yourself. And one day on a weekend, I was standing upstairs and there's a Sea Town supermarket downstairs there. So I saw them throwing boxes of mangoes and boxes of you know, various things that they buy and put it on a shelf. So I said, that that box can't be my dining table. So I walked down there and picked the biggest dining table. I was able to eat my food above ground there you by go. using there you that go. box. You know, I want the youth who is listening to this understand there is no quick win in life anymore. Everything is competitive. Mm -hmm. Everybody is smarter than the other guy. Internet access is available to everyone. So who is a unique person today? In those days, I was unique because there was less public information available. Very less public information. Mm -hmm. So I took advantage of that. And then here comes 1998. I, ha I have to talk names. The government of India at that time was contemplating encouraging Indian exporters to go into aquaculture. You know, sustainable aquaculture. Peneus monodon, which is black, black tigers. tigers yep. So that time there was a promotional agency in India, and even today they exist. It's called the Marine Products Export Development Authority. Uh, they knew that I was smart, capable, uh, visionary, etc. That they said, and they called me for a meeting, and they said, "This zone for black tiger shrimp was uh, earmarked." to be in the northern, northeast of Chennai, which is Madras, the state of Tamil Nadu, mm -hmm. which is called the state of Andhra Pradesh, where there's very less pollutants, water discharge was perfect, weather conditions was ideal for the aquaculture because there were no industries there. Even today, there are very less industries there. This is a, it's a fisherman's coast. Okay? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that is where the government of India encouraged farmers to uh, to set up farms. Well, government of India imported brood stocks. Uh, they created hatcheries. Slowly, the business started, and they need processing plant, and they need sales. There's no point. There's no Indian market. Even in in India, 80% of the people population are vegetarians even today. Really? They don't yeah. eat shrimp. Interesting. So, so there is no market in India to sell black tiger shrimp. So government of India clearly knew that we need plants, we need modern plants to set up. So they called me because they knew I'd set up a plant in Cochin, in India, most modern plant. They said, hey, we expect a good raw material to come from the state of Andhra Pradesh. Why don't Choice Canning set up a plant? Yes, I did. But I didn't know the black tiger business. Salad shrimp I knew. Bread shrimp business to sell I knew. Yep. But where yep. do I sell this? So when I came out and saw what is going on, yes, by then Taiwan, I'm talking real story, 
Taiwan was the first country to start exporting commercial volumes of black tiger shrimp. Okay. Not Thailand, not Vietnam, not Indonesia, not India. So Taiwan did a good job in terms of, you know, black tiger. And that time in the West Coast, there's a very popular company, probably you all would have heard called Contessa. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, Mr. Blasevich, you know, very creative guy. I, I respect him. He's one of my role models even today. Uh, he jumped into that business and he created a fashionable industry called the Black Tiger Shrimp Cook-based products. Cook shrimp with the tail. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it. Uh, one segment of the shrimp and two segments of the shrimp cut to, to devay in it. Fashionized the packaging. He, he brought in the packaging concepts and he created that euphoria of the industry. Big Cook shrimp and Black Tiger. And he had monopoly kind of a market those days. And so Costco's introduced them and all the hotels, the Trader Joe's and number restaurants and the Sheraton's and the Marriott's and everybody, you know, started to use his his product and he was quite successful. So I knew at that time, you know, if I have to do production of this product, Singleton won't buy this. Singleton is not in that category. They are in salad shrimp. Yeah. And they are in bread shrimp. So I tried to meet, you know, Contessa. John, you know, who wants this? He knew what he wanted. He had done a lot of studies and um, he said that time India was primitive. India is not the right country we want to be in. We want to be in a little more advanced economies like Taiwan. And by then he was in Thailand and Thailand was doing a pretty good job. You know, Thailand was a lot more advanced than India at that time. So I tried to meet him and he kind of brushed me off and he said, no, we don't want to be in India now. So I delayed the operation and finally in 1991, I could convince him. And we decided to set up a plant in the location where the black tiger shrimp was grown. First plant set up in India. First plant, 1991. The little village that I set up this plant we could not have access for screwdrivers, leave alone any spare parts, uh-huh. leave alone any tools. But I had the confidence and the guts, I must say, to move a team from my my plant in Cochin. And then Contessa signed a deal with me, an exclusive buyback arrangement. Whatever I produce, they buy. Wow. So they send their team to this new location, trained, in fact, even build the plant together, guided me. All investment was us. They of never invested. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but the deal was whatever I produce, I buy back. But they gave us the packaging, they gave us the knowledge, they gave us the technical support, they gave us reasonable prices also for the product. I must say, I must acknowledge that. Otherwise, I will not be doing justice to it. Uh, I hope John will listen to this one day, who's still there. And, uh, you know, it went on very well. It went on very, very well. A uh, lot of success on Contessa because he expanded his business elsewhere. He went into vegetables, he went into meal kits, he started making chicken products. And I used to celebrate his success. But unfortunately, uh, he started to grow at a faster pace. And ISS on office supply for the shrimp was not making money. Okay. We were losing money. Obviously, that put pressure on me. And I say, hey, this does not make commercial sense. So in 2000, in 2000, I remember, uh, one of my consignments that was shipped to Contessa got rejected by Contessa QCT for certain character of the shrimp. You know, truly, it was uh, when I flew down 
to LA to the cold storage and when I inspected the product, yes, I found some unacceptable, you know, color change mm-hmm. in the shrimp. And I said, I'll take it back. He had already paid me for it. Good enough, I paid him the money, probably a million dollar. I don't know how I found it. Took the product back and I kept it in a warehouse in New Jersey where I was living. And I said, now what do I do with this? The problem was with the tail. The tail had got black, blackened because it was a kind of a reaction from the water in the farm. Okay. Some algae formation along with chlorination, the tails became black. So the only thing is pinch the tail. But there is no market those days for large cooked shrimp without a tail. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I asked Contessa, will you help me? I said, no. You go and do what you want with it. Then I said, what do I do with this? I need to find a market for it. I have to sell it because it's a million dollars. Otherwise, I'm going to go down the drain. Right. So I knew Fulton at that time. I knew there was small mom and pop restaurants who could use this. So fortunately enough, I hired a lady who knew a little bit of this business. And she came aboard and she said, yep, JT will sell this. Those days they called me Joe, so I never had JT brand. JT brand is only 2000 plus. <laughs> okay. okay, 2010 plus. Because when I became successful, people gave me the tag JT. There you go. That, that was the deciding moment. You knew you made it once you got that, right? <laughs> right, correct. <laughs> So that, that's the branding you get, you know, for AJ, for, you know, A-Rod and all this stuff. They never got it when they were playing yeah. in their hometown. <laughs> that's true. You know what I'm saying? So I recognize these things. So I said, okay, here we go. Guts. Nothing but guts. I said, I'll ship it back to India. For the first time, the Indian authorities who passed the shipment to leave quality-wise they raised the eyebrows and said, what the heck is going on? Indian, India don't like to see any return shipments. Mm-hmm. So it landed back. I convinced them. I started to reprocess. The only reprocessing that could be done is pinch the tail. When you pinch the tail, I got naked shrimp, cooked naked shrimp, and I don't know what to do. So since I had an office here, I shipped it back here. <laughs> and I told the new hire, go find a market. We found the market found because I used to go to Fulton Market at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, yeah. Fulton Street Market, before 9-11, where it was located. I used to go sit there and talk to the dealers there and I convinced them this is beautiful cooked shrimp and this is good for restaurants, good for retail, good for this, good for that. End of story, we could liquidate this inventory in about three to four months at a huge cost. We lost money like hell. Mm. Now, by then I decided, hey... I haven't made any money dealing with Contessa. And on top of that, they never gave me a handholding when I was in disaster, right. which I never created. It was an accident. So why the heck I can't be another Contessa? Guys, think about it. Queens on the floor, made up, corrugated box, dining table. Now I'm thinking, why can't I be Contessa? Now who was Contessa at that time? Boston Seafood Show. He controls it. The best of booth. He had a thousand square feet floor booth. Uh, tax, the cabs in Boston running with this logo on top of the cars. Contessa. The best party in town. All customers want to go there. All suppliers want to go there. And that's the time when I'm thinking I want to be another Contessa. Even my family told me, you're out of your mind. There's that big picture thinking, you know? Yes. And that's the story. 
My story yep. of my life is always, even today, I have an idea. Today. Today I'm called JT. Yeah, I have a lot more than I used to have. A lot more comforts I used to have. Mm -hmm. But that desire, does that desire stop anywhere? No. This industry gave me that. The seafood marine industry that started from ocean guard products, then I graduated into aquaculture products, gave me a career. There's no magic here. Finally, trust me, I started the Tasty Choice brand in 2001. We, we did the trademark for it. I had lawyers here, did everything together, and I started to tell if I can bring shrimp cheaper here than Contessa using my own factory, let's do it. So I started to do it, bring it here, and I said, now what do I do? I have to mention a name here. I was in New Jersey. By then, we had left New York City, and I was in Edison, New Jersey. That's where our office is. So I found out who was the main supermarket here, ShopRite. ShopRite, those days, used to have 200, 150, 180 stores. Then I'm talking 2002. I used my, you know, investigation and found that they buy a lot of shrimp. I found out the name of the person. His, his name is Robert Surlo, a person whom I owe a lot. I think he has done, he has a podcast going on something else. He's the most respectful person. Even today, he's in shop right in a much higher position. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. go to him and sold the idea from source, factory direct. This, I'm not contest, I'm not a middleman. You know, try to sell, but he was not convinced of my size. Whether choice scanning can meet the requirement of of contestant Man. of Shoprite, if they gave me an opportunity, the current supplier will say, "Come on, why are you buying from the little guy? We will we'll stop supplying to you." So I had to convince Shoprite. I'm so obligated to Shoprite today. We have many retailers that we do business with. I'll never forget my path that I walked, and I have to acknowledge here, Shoprite gave me the first opportunity to put my product Tasty Choice on their shelves. And that was the day when I was so proud, so happy. And one day when I asked them, I want to go to some demos in your stores, they were happy and they gave me the Clark store. I've never been to kind of Northern New Jersey in my life or Central New Jersey. I went to that store and I took my own boxes and I stood in the aisles and I cooked shrimp there and I told housewives, this is the real shrimp, go for it. I sold that shrimp. The days I used to do the floor demo, mm -hmm. that store ran out of product. Wow. That store ran out of product. And ShopRite owners, you know, who owns it, they, they looked at it and said, wow, it's a perfect partnership. We build on that partnership. We build it. Today, even today in the Northeast, they're my number one customer. Even today. A 19, 20 years of relationship. They trust us. We have a mutual, you know, understanding of quality, sustainability, you know, living together, pricing, all that, perfect. And then, of course, the rest of the team came aboard. We have stop and shop in the market, we do business. We have various other retailers to all are thankful for. Then, you know, the biggest thing was in 2004, I'm like a storyteller, I hope you No, you're doing this. a great job, I love it. <laughs> the U.S. government was approached by the Southern Shrimp Alliance, SSA, mm -hmm. And I said, oh, Mr. Government, these Asian companies are screwing our happiness. So what is that? The dumping shrimp is affecting, impacting the domestic shrimp, fishermen, you know, all the Louisiana Southern area. 
They filed a case against five countries, India included, for dumping shrimp. Oh, that included Thailand, China, Mexico, India, and one more country. Bottom line, India came under investigation of the ITC, and the Department of Commerce took on that. They investigated and found that, yes, including India, we were dumping shrimp below cost. That is the biggest challenge. I said, my God, this is going to be a problem, mm. which I never anticipated. It. And they put India on a, a duty rate of anti-dumping duty, not a tariff, of about 13, 14% to begin with, and Indian shrimp became very non-competitive. Mm. Okay, that, that time I realized something, hey, I don't want to be in the justice business because any vulnerability can catch me here. So how do I survive? So then again, I used to go back to Contessa. Contessa at that time had been focusing on producing prepared meals. Shrimp was one of the items. So they put pasta into a bag, sauce in a bag, protein in a bag, and vegetables in a bag, and sealed it, and they started selling under the Contessa brand. So I said... If this guy can do it, why can't I do it? Okay? Mm -hmm. I'm still friends with John. Okay, please. I went back into saying, hey, let's do this. Went back to the drawing board. Went all around the world. Went to Argentina to buy tomatoes to create, you know, carbonara sauce, to create primavera sauce, to create white sauce. I went to Italy. All that, <clears throat> put it together. Today... And 2004, I went into production. Today, we are a major player in the meal category uh, under the name Tasty Choice. We do plenty of private label production. We pack for most of the major retailers in this country. We also have our own brand with Tasty Choice. Meal kits, we call it as we have shrimp-based items, chicken-based items, and beef-based items. You have a bio item. So that, that business really grew for us tremendously, especially during the COVID time. Mm. Oh, yeah, I imagine. Because oh, yeah. the eating patterns changed. Uh, you know, the, the, the new brand new youngsters they said, hey, if I can go to the supermarket, pay five bucks for two for meal for two, that's what we retail at now. We retail at $4.99. It's a meal for two. So that became a big success story. So what we did, we used to buy sauce in uh, Italy and Argentina. Mm -hmm. And with all the logistics costs going up here and there, in 2007, we set up our own sauce plant in India. Now, how do you make a white sauce? You need cheese, you need garlic, you need... But everything that we were buying was all semi-artificial. Garlic powder, onion powder. Yep. Whereas in India, we use fresh garlic, fresh onion, grated onions. We imported cheese. Whatever we couldn't get, we imported it. And we substantially... And has the quality of the sauce and lower the cost. Lower the cost. Today, we are able to produce our, our sauce at half the cost that we could buy. Wow. But wow. our plant is here. So we supply the sauce from India. I supply the shrimp from India. Two, two battle one, which my competition don't have. Huh. They're, not, they're not a shrimp producer. Now they're, they're manufacturers of sauce. So I went from Queens to making sauce today. Today, we produce more than 5 million pounds of sauce a year. Any type of sauce. So from one business, another one was born, and another one was born, and that is a vision I had. And that is a vision I want to share with the current youth to say, there's no limit to this business. Nothing at mm -hmm. all. 
then you went into skewered shrimp, then you went into enrobed shrimp, then you went into various type of marinated shrimp, then you went into shrimp rings, then you went into skewered shrimp. So there's a lot of opportunity available in this business, provided you have a vision and a commitment and a, that, that big picture. Where retailers today in this country love to get ideas, they love to see what's new. Because in 10 years from now, for sure, the current generation is not going to drive a car to the supermarket and buy a whole chicken, bring it home and portion it and then make a dish out of it. No, you know that. Mm -hmm. uh, with all this Uber Eats and all this Grubhub and all this stuff, they're so used to opening the mouth and the food go inside. That's it. That's the best <laughs> thing we like to do. So, so I'm, I'm creating that. And I would definitely ask my listeners here, to say, to pay attention, to start thinking about value-added products. Not only shrimp, you can do it in fish, you can do it in chicken, you can do it in other meat products. As long as you make it sustainable and healthy, mm -hmm. and as long as the nutritional label on the packaging read within fair means, where the current millennials, the current youth, go and first look at the nutritional labeling before they, they pay the money. Mm -hmm. So there's a great opportunity now to create new value-added products and uh, to tweak it in a way that becomes tasty and healthy and to use sustainable practices to see your whole supply chain is, you know, monitored and there is documentation available for traceability and things like that. And have a good packaging, bring in efficiency, don't buy from middlemen, go to the source, if it's Argentina, go to Argentina. If it's Spain, go to Spain. Don't go fish yourself. That won't work. But get as close as you can get to the source. And this is what I did, and the success story continues. Today, unfortunately, Contessa is out of business. They're not there. Singleton is also not there. Whomever I did business is not there. They all have to pack up. I don't know for what reasons. They don't exist anymore. But today, Choice Canning Company is the top eighth player in the country in this industry. From Queens, from what the story I told you, from when the Japanese rejected me to do business with, with, because I was underaged, to today, 42 years I've enjoyed from the age of 17, sitting on this desk. And I'm soon planning to leave day to day. I have two sons, three daughters. Mm -hmm. All the five are so interested to continue the, 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 the grandfather's vision. Mm -hmm. So we have a third generation company. I'm confident we're going to take it. I'm confident we're going to bring a lot more youth into this industry, thus creating a perfect career opportunities for people. Beautiful. That's it. So what, what, do you think, uh, what do you think you'd say to your dad right now if you could talk to him right now? He's so proud. He's sitting right there. I've got his photograph right there. He's awesome. So I can't see. I can't see it off camera, but uh, yeah, he's right there behind me. Perfect. He is. He'll be the most proud person today because, from where to where, it's 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 a story, mm -hmm. and and it's real, and this can be validated. You can you can check the data. All right. Awesome. Well, you spoke so well, and you answered every single question <laughs> that I usually have during these, and and. I'm not even just saying that. Like usually during a career pathways episode, I always like to say, okay, what was your defining moment? Right? Was it was your defining moment raising your hand saying, I want to continue this business? 
was it trying to get, there was just so many crossroads, right? I always use the word crossroads in a career pathway. There's always a tough choice that had to be made, but I think your drive, your commitment and your passion, you had multiple crossroads that actually came, came to with during your story and you just kept pushing forward and you didn't give up. And I think some of our younger listeners or whatever age listener, the listeners that we have that are in similar shoes and that they're trying to do something with this industry, I think they're going to learn a lot from your story on on how to make that next step. Absolutely. You know, I'm so happy uh, you selected me. I know I'm not going to have any direct gain from it, but the gain I would see is if someone, you know, can, you know, stand up and say, I'm going to make it, you know, there is an opportunity in this industry. There's very many ways to do it. I'll be so happy and glad. You know, I speak about this topic on many forums, mm-hmm. by the way, and probably that's a, that's that's the reason I, could, I can narrate it like end to end story. It's not an everyday job, but I do go to universities, I go to colleges, and I speak to the youngsters, and I've done it many a times. And I would love to do that to see what we can do as we live in this world to contribute to the next generation that is walking behind us. Well, we really appreciate you being generous to sh- enough to share this story. And I want to, I'm on your website, joesthomas.in. And uh, one thing it mentions is that you are also a lover of music, which I, Justin exactly. and I can relate to where we're musicians and we, we love music too. I'm a drummer. I, I'm a drummer. Perfect. So we got two thirds of a band here. Um, <laughs> exactly. But I want to talk. So I don't about, know what Justin does. Are you, on a, are you a bassist or keyboard or piano? What do you play? Uh, I do bass and guitar and Justin does guitar. Fantastic. So we're good to go. Fantastic. So, uh, but I want to I want to so, talk about the Performing Arts Center. Performing Arts Center. See, education, schools. You know, I have, I've diversified into various areas. <laughs> you know, within this time, as we speak, there are close to thirty five hundred students who go to choice school in in India. Uh, there are seven schools, K to twelve. I got more than three thousand alumni, doctors, engineers, pilots, searchers, business people, lawyers. No judges yet. <laughs> and JT Performing Arts Center, which is uh, again set up for creating art, forms of art, and making sure that the traditional forms of art does not die. India has 300 types of percussion instruments, 300 types. And today, who, the new generation, they only know drums, if possible, electronic drums. Yeah. Okay, but they don't know where that rhythm came from. So, with all that in mind, JT Pack, JT Performing Arts Center is right now closed for COVID, but you know we operated it very well for many, many years. And in the near future, I will revisit that and reopen it again and bring some excellent shows and programs. Uh, I've even bought OCBSA, the original OCBSA to JT Pack. Do you have more information about that online somewhere? About yes, it's it's yes, it is uh, a lot of information is available online on JT Pack. Okay. And I'm also a chef. I cook. One of my major hobbies is that. I'm, I've done my diploma in ICE here in New York mm-hmm. City. as international culinary education. Mm-hmm. So I'm very passionate about various things. I love life. And that's what I want to tell people. you got to love yourself first. And then success will follow. Amen. For sure. So, what, so then all these things that you have done, all these things that you're doing, your picture has never shrunk. You've been big picture your whole life. What, what is, what's next? Absolutely. You see, next I'm thinking now, I've never been in the business of breading. I've supplied mushroom for breading. And breading is a huge category. Mm-hmm. 
We're setting up a plant as we speak in India okay. again to do breading okay. and source. So how many plants are and there in India right now that you have? We right now have three plants as okay. we speak right now. And the fourth one is, you know, under planning. It's on the drawing board. By March of next year, we will be building a state-of-the-art real plant, you know, that has ever been built in the history of Asia that will open and inaugurate next March. I have... I have nice dining table now. <laughs> I drive really good cars. Not not the not the number seven train I used to take to New York City. I live a decent life. But why again? Again, because uh, my job is to create wealth. Create wealth and distribute wealth. Mm-hmm. Close to 3,000 employees I have. So the, sh- the power of sharing the wealth is the pleasure that I get today. And that's something which people should understand is not for ourselves. You know, we leave this world and all what keeps you in memory or in history is what actions you have done on the on the better side of things while you were around. And that's my goal of life. And I'll make sure that I'll accomplish that as I walk my journey further and further. I don't play golf. No. <laughs> I don't spend time. But even day before yesterday, we had a nice gig where we played drums and we had a musician and we had a great time. Well, maybe yeah. um, maybe next spring around the time of the Boston Seafood Show, we'll get together with you. We'll play sure. some music. We'll get together. All right, That'd Sean and Paul and uh, Justin, thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. Jump another meeting. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Folks, that was our conversation with JT from Choice Canning. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. I know I certainly did. It's super inspiring to hear his story, and we really appreciate him coming on and joining us for a Career Pathways episode. Remember to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen so you can get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device as soon as it becomes available. Follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod. Fill out our online form located at globalseafood.org podcast if you have topic suggestions, want to be a guest, or want to sponsor the podcast. That's right. And remember to leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Ciao. Bye.